Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 10. The Vulcan has just bombed Port Stanley Airfield, causing significant damage, and the Argentinians on the islands were about to experience a wave of attacks by sea harriers. While this was happening, Argentina's most powerful warship, the General Belgrano, was steaming into the Atlantic for the last time, as it turned out. To the northeast, Vice Admiral Woodward's battle group of 13 ships had entered the exclusion zone in the early hours of the 1st of May, and the flight deck crews on board the carriers were prepping the sea harriers for the next blow. Invincible had modern radar and a smaller air group and was designated as the air defence ship, concentrating on providing combat air patrols to fly cover for the fleet. The 12 harriers on board Hermes were going to fly to the Falklands. The planes, led by Lieutenant Commander Andy Old of 800 Squadron, took off from the Hermes at first light, assembled over the fleet, then turned towards the Falklands coast. Balancing the fuel against the bomb payloads had been a mathematical challenge, but Woodward made this easier by bringing his carriers closer than 70 miles off the coast to give the Harriers an opportunity to carry heavy bomb loads. The 12 flew in low and fast, three aircraft detached to attack the Goose Green Argentinian base. The rest were aiming at Stanley Runway and anti-aircraft defences. Two of these took photographs to record the damage caused by the Vulcan bombing then joined four others flying air patrols nearby to see off any mirages. Nine more Sea Harriers dove straight onto Stanley Airfield, flying in two groups, one to the northeast and the other from the northwest. They came in extremely low and dropped 27 bombs along the airfield. A fuel store was hit along with the runway. The Argentinian anti-aircraft positions were ready for them and a huge volume of tracers began to arc up into the sky towards the Harriers with one pilot describing it as like watching a child sparkler on Guy Fawkes night. One Harrier was hit in the tail by a cannon shell, but made it back to the carriers. The remaining three Harriers attacked the base at Goose Green. A Bukhara air patrol was just taking off when the jump jets swooped in from the north and dropped their bombs. One of the Bukharas was actually on its ground roll on the strip when its nose wheel broke off in a bomb hole on the runway. A cluster of bomblets then dropped right across the second Bukhara, which exploded as its own munitions were set off. The pilot was killed, along with five Air Force mechanics standing nearby. A horrible scene of carnage and destruction. The grass airstrip was cratered, and two other Bukharas were damaged and out of action for the rest of the war. The Argentinian army units protecting the airfield had actually moved away from the strip earlier, after intelligence reports suggested that the British would target them. A Chinook arrived to ferry the wounded to the main medical centre in Stanley, but two more Argentinians died on board during the Kazakhstan. The Harriers returned to Hermes and Invincible, then took off and turned away towards open sea after being rearmed with sidewinder missiles, should the Mirages show up on attack. Back at Stanley, residents watched as a single fighter jet flew overhead, seeming to take its time crossing from west to east. Suddenly, the plane was engulfed in black puffs of smoke, the Argentinian anti-aircraft cannon found their mark, but observers wondered why the pilot had not fired up the afterburners, what was going on. Moments later, the plane exploded in a brilliant flash of white, and the pilot was lost with the plane. Argentinian troops on the slopes of the hills around Stanley shouted with jubilation. Some jumped up and down. But that quickly changed to horror because they realized the guns had just shot down one of their own mirages. This was one of a group of mirages that had met two sea harriers over the north of the Falklands. In the brisk missile exchange that took place, both mirages were hit. 
One crashed into the sea off Pebble Island and the pilot ejected. He was fortunate enough to come down close to land and he merely waded ashore. The other was Captain Gustavo Cueva's plane that was badly damaged by a Sidewinder missile and was heading to Stanley in an attempt at an emergency landing. Unfortunately, he approached from the west, the direction that the Harriers had approached, and the trigger-happy anti-aircraft gunners opened fire on him. In a cruel twist, the commander of the AA battery, Major Jorge Monge, was walking from Government House when the Mirage flew past, and there was no way he could stop his men from firing. He could have ejected and saved himself, but he was definitely trying to save his plane. It took me some time to get over that incident, he said later. Meanwhile, a dagger flight had encountered more sea harriers. One of the Argentinian planes was hit and exploded over the south coast of East Falkland near Lively Island. The body of the pilot, First Lieutenant José Ardiles, was never found. He was the cousin of the famous footballer Ozzy Ardiles. Three other British ships, the destroyer Glamorgan and frigates Arrow and Alacrity, had begun a barrage of what was thought to be Argentinian positions at Fort Stanley, closing to within 12 miles of the misty coastline. The sea was heavy as they sailed to and fro, firing along the length of the coast, shooting by map. The sound was a heavy crack, boom, and that was going to be heard for the next few weeks as the war continued. They hit the airfield parking area, a road between Stanley and the airfield, two suspected gun positions and two radar stations on Sapper Hill and Mount William. The Argentinian Coast Guard ship, the Ilas Malvinas, managed to get off a few rounds aimed at a Lynx helicopter from Alacrity. The chopper fired back. Both were hit, with the soldier on board the Ilas Malvinas wounded. A Wessex helicopter was also targeted by the defenders and then driven off by two Tiger Cat missiles. The British were trying to entice the Argentinians out to fight, and the barrage was a provocation strategy. They expected Buenos Aires to order out a full counterattack immediately, and British officers waited in vain for what they thought would be a coordinated sea and air attack. The Argentinian 5th Fighter Group sent four second-hand American Douglas Skyhawk A-4Bs carrying 500-pound bombs, while the 8th Fighter Group provided top-cover escort of four of its newer Mirage 3EAs, fitted with two Air Matro Magic missiles each and two 30mm cannons. Four Dagger 1As from 6th Fighter Group took off from Rio Grande. The Dagger was an Israeli-re-engineered copy of the Mirage, and these were armed with two Shafriel missiles and two 30mm cannons. One of the 12 pilots involved would not survive the day. Four more would die later in the month. The 12 aircraft reached the Falklands when they came under direction of the local Air Force controllers. This was the first time any had been in combat. The Skyhawks and Daggers failed to find targets and returned to base. But four Mirage 3s then began closing fast from the west and British radar picked them up early. Heads up west was the call from the British ships bombarding the coast as they tracked the four dots heading straight towards them. The Harriers, which were circling at altitude, began to lose height and gain speed in an attempt at intercepting the Mirages. It was a simple tactical manoeuvre because the Harrier pilots were not going to try and dogfight the Mirages. They knew how good the French plane was, so they proposed to evade combat for a few minutes until the thirsty Mirages were forced to return for home with low fuel. Then the Harriers would move in for the kill. The Mirages came in so fast that the anti-aircraft defences on the ships were unable to open fire or even engage them before they swooped. A sailor called David Tinkler wrote home about what happened next. We engaged our gas turbines with a will and sent up enormous plumes of smoke, he said. A lot of whooshes and daka daka. 
We had all legged it into the hangar and lay flat on the deck, tin helmets on and fingers in ears. There were yells of aircraft, aircraft over the tannoy, then bangs as the chaff was fired, and seconds later two huge explosions hit the ocean on both sides of the Glamorgan at the stern, lifting the propellers right out of the water. Rockets fired from the mirages then passed the ship and two 1,000-pound bombs fell in the ocean alongside the vessel quarterdeck. That caused us to be very frightened, remarked the captain later in typical British wryness. The frigate Arrow had received superficial damage to her funnel and upper works from cannon fire, and a seaman had been hit in the arm. The Argentinians were also using heavy machine guns from the beach and hit Alacrity's helicopter as the three ships turned and headed east at full speed. Then two of the mirages were caught by the Harriers and shot down. The Argentinians launched other local flights. Three turbomentals of the 4th Naval Attack Squadron took off from Pebble Island and were ordered to focus on the British helicopters thought to be landing troops north of Stanley. These are tiny aircraft, slow, and were in real danger should the fighters find them. And find them, the Harriers did, just as the three turbomentals lined up a British helicopter buzzing around near Cow Bay. One of the Argentinian pilots shouted, Lobos a la ses, or wolves at six o'clock. Sub-Lieutenant Daniel Manzella was flying number two turbo mentor and described the scene. I instinctively broke to the right at the same time I heard the sound of the 30mm cannon of the Sea Harriers. I jettisoned my pods of rockets and of machine gun ammunition and the Sea Harrier passed over me at that moment. The prop-driven turbo mentor was so slow that the Harrier overshot and as the British pilot tried to reposition, Manzella managed to escape into cloud. Later, the Harrier pilots said they could have shot these planes down but didn't want to waste expensive sidewinder missiles against these old prop-driven planes. They would forego these inhibitions as the war continued. The submarine escort group Yarmouth and Brilliant were sailing close by with the Sea King dipping its sonar in and out of the water searching for the Argentinian submarine, the San Luis. Instead of danger from below, however, their radar picked up danger from above. Two Canberra bombers were approaching from the west at high level. The ships fired chaff immediately and began to take evasive action. A few minutes later, one of the Harriers brought down a Canberra. The other turned for home. The Brilliant and Yarmouth began to drop depth charges and eventually an oil slick was seen. But the Argentinians said later the British had damaged one of the wrecks of old whaling ships in the area, which accounted for the slick. The next Argentinian effort was mounted by the 4th and 5th fighter groups based at San Julian and Rio Gallegos when 24 Skyhawk sorties were flown in flights of four aircraft, all equipped with bombs. But only one of these found a target, the 5th Treno, or Thunder Flight, led by Captain Pablo Corballo. One of his team turned back with technical problems, the other three flew on, and soon they spotted a ship sailing in the open sea to the south of Port Stanley. Viva la patria, shouted Carvalho and hit full throttle. It was late afternoon, and the vessel, you could see, against the sun, had a rectangular metal superstructure. It was a tanker. He dropped his bombs and climbed out, then turned and saw that the ship was intact, so he dived back straight towards it and opened fire with his cannon. I watched my tracer ammunition go into the upper works, rebounding everywhere. The radio was alive with the joyful pilots, Happy they terrorized an enemy ship, even if it wasn't sinking. But the ship Carbello and his flight attacked was actually a friendly ELMA merchant ship Formosa, which had just delivered a large cargo of military stores to the Argentinians at Stanley and was hustling to try and get out of the danger zone when it was caught.
Luckily for Carbello, one of the bombs he dropped failed to explode on board, while the second bounced off the superstructure. The ship's master, Captain J.G. Gregorio, reported later he'd been attacked by British sea harriers. The British remained on full alert, expecting more attacks, but none came that day. And yet they learned an important lesson. The mirages had missed blowing up the Glamorgan by the skin of their teeth, and the bombing runs were far more accurate than the British expected. Because of this, it was the last time that the English fleet attempted to bombard the Falkland coast in broad daylight. From now on, they had attack at night, and the Glamorgan returned at 8.40pm that very night to resume the shelling. As soldiers know, the night is the most useful to those who are willing to use the dark. A man of the 3rd Argentinian Regiment was killed on Sapper Hill and at least five others injured in that night bombardment. Then there was a lull of several hours after the Harrier attack on Stanley and the Mirage attacks on the three British warships. The bombarding British ships then withdrew at around 10pm and there was silence except for the wind whipping through the islands. The civilians at Goose Green were ordered to leave their homes and were now huddled in the community hall that evening. The Argentinians believed that the British would land their main force and by moving the civilians into the hall, they hoped to avoid a direct attack. They also realized that the British citizens were hostile and uncooperative. They had been leaving their lights on all night and letting their animals walk around on the Argentinian minefields and they even cut off water sometimes. Their children were also in danger, so the idea was to congregate them in one place and then paint a red cross on the roof of the hall. More than a hundred men, women and children were going to remain in that hall for a month while the Argentinians made themselves comfortable in the Kalpa homes. That same night, the first SAS and SBS units were put ashore on East and West Falklands by helicopter. About 300 nautical miles west of the total exclusion zone of TEZ and close to the Argentine coast, two British submarines were venturing in search of the enemy's boats. The Royal Navy knew that they had to find these boats before the largest and most dangerous entered the TEZ, particularly the General Belgrano. In early April 1982, the British War Cabinet had ordered the subs to keep away from the mainland lest they sink one of the more important ships and then damage possible negotiations. But by the end of April, Margaret Thatcher's cabinet had changed their minds. On the 26th of April, the rules of engagement were extended to include the defence zone, and if you remember, the diplomatic letter handed to the Argentines by the Swiss on behalf of the British clearly stated any ship that approached the islands in any way would be regarded as a target. The nuclear-powered Churchill-class submarine Conqueror was moved from her holding position in the north to a position southwest of the Falklands. Another sub called the Splendid began to patrol in the north, searching for an Argentine submarine in the northern zone called the San Luis. Meanwhile, the HMS Splendid had been shadowing an Argentine task group of Type 42 destroyers together with Exocet frigates moving south along the coast at a fairly slow pace of 10 knots. Navy intelligence was more interested in the location of the cruiser General Belgrano and the aircraft carrier Ventecinso de Mayo. So the submarine Conqueror continued scanning the southern Argentinian coast during late April 1982, trying to find the Belgrano. It didn't take long. Commander Chris Redford-Brown reported on the 2nd of May that he had located the cruiser, which was escorted by two other Exocet destroyers. Petty Officer William, or Billy Guinea, was the designated ship identifier, and he was an expert at recognizing Russian ships. That's because the Russians were the only ships that the Conqueror had stalked before the Falklands War. 
Like others, he had had to use Jane's fighting ships to build his own private database of what Argentinian ships looked like. Then he had asked the base photographer back in England to copy and enlarge these pictures. These were so accurate that Billy Guinea had no problem identifying the General Belgrano nor the two destroyers alongside the Piedra Buena and the Hippolito Bouchard. The order from London arrived to sink the Belgrano, and this is considered the most controversial decision of the war. During a debate in the House of Commons later, Secretary of State for Defence John Knott justified the act by saying it was a heavily armed surface group close to the British exclusion zone and elements of the British task force. The cruiser packed huge firepower, 15-inch guns with a range of 13 miles and CCAT anti-aircraft missiles. As I explained last podcast, the Argentinian Navy was aware of the warning issued by London that any of its ships approaching the exclusion zone were a target. Later, Buenos Aires would claim that the Belgrano was innocent, but all men fighting at this point would beg to differ. Any naval vessel, whether British or Argentinian, was a target right now, no matter where it was. That's why it's called a war. The Belgrano had sailed from Argentina's southernmost port of Ushua on April 26, and there were 1,093 crew aboard. 300 of these were raw recruits with an average age of 18. A few miles away of these men, Redford Brown was also under pressure underwater. The nuclear submarine was his first command, and some of the men were whispering that he didn't have the ability to lead. They were also muttering about Surgeon Lieutenant Commander Chris MacDonald. It was the first time a surgeon had been included amongst the crew, and the submariners were both puzzled and disturbed by his presence. Conqueror may have simply crippled the Belgrano because she was armed with Mark 24 Tigerfish torpedoes, which could be set to explode in the proximity of the target rather than on impact. This would have reduced both damage and a loss of life. But the Tigerfish is extremely expensive, at half a million pounds a pop. It was also unreliable during tests and had independently changed course during one of these tests and almost sank the launch submarine. So Commander Redford Brown ordered his torpedo officer, Billy Budding, to load the tubes with the vintage Mark 8 torpedoes, which were Second World War relics. At 4pm on May the 2nd, the first torpedo was fired without a warning or a challenge from less than three miles, and it hit the Belgrano on the port bow, killing ten sailors. This blast struck around 15 yards back from the bow and blew the entire bow section off the ship. The bulkheads behind held and the powder magazine behind these did not explode. This, by the way, was the third time that Belgrano had lost its bow, and this would be its last. The first was in action during the Second World War. The second was when she collided with her sister ship, the Noveno de Julio. Another torpedo then hit her stern, missing the armor plating, and the blast took out the machine room. The effects of this huge explosion rippled into the two messes, one for petty officers and one for senior seamen. On the deck above these were two dining halls and a general relaxation area called the Soda Fountain. They were even more crowded than normal because the shift changed at 4 p.m. There were no survivors here, 275 men at least had died almost instantly. The forward and rear bulkheads were closed, but too much water was rushing into the damaged portions of the ship. More than 20 meter long holes had been punched through various sections of this vessel. Hundreds of men began tumbling onto the deck from below, some naked as their clothes had burned off. 
The large cruiser was taking on water and within 10 minutes she was listing 15 degrees. Redford Brown saw this through the periscope and ordered the Conqueror to dive deep as the standard response in this circumstance. It took another full day before the commander could contact London with the news that the Belgrano had sunk. Belgrano commander Hector Bonzo gave the order Abandonar el Buc, abandon ship, the order being passed man to man because all comms equipment, external or internal, had been destroyed in the torpedo hit. Seventy self-inflating rafts with room for 20 men each were put over the side, mostly on the starboard side because the water was lapping over the deck owing to its list angle. But many of these rafts were damaged in the torpedo strike, so it ended up with 30 men in a raft and some of these men were terribly burned. The Argentinians had not issued their men with anti-flash masks or gloves and these badly injured sailors were in such shock that they initially made no sound whatsoever. The ship began to list towards the rafts. The men tried to row away, but their oil-covered hands slipped on the wooden oars and they resorted to paddling furiously with their hands. They were only about a hundred yards from the Belgrano when it began to go down stern first. Some of the men sang the Argentinian national anthem at that moment. On board the sub, crew had pumped the air in excitement when they heard the torpedoes strike. While on board other British ships, the feeling was repeated. But then the facts began to sink in. 368 men had died. Dozens more had been burned and mutilated by the explosions, and reflections set in amongst the British sailors. There, but for the grace of God go I, was the general opinion, and almost all were shaken by the immensity of the tragedy. One British destroyer captain said he informed his crew of the sinking, and then, There was a mixture of horror and disbelief. There certainly wasn't any pride. The suffering of the men in these rafts was immense. One sailor, who was so badly burnt, he spent 36 hours on his hands and knees and was eventually taken on board an Argentinian ship, where he died an hour later. The two Argentinian escort ships had no idea that the Belgrano had been sunk. They were out of visual range in the gloom, although they did have radar contact. The Belgrano's distress rockets and lights were all damaged, along with her comms. Ironically, the captain aboard the Hippolyta Bouchard felt the blast and thought the torpedoes had hit them or exploded nearby. He immediately turned west, launching depth charges as he went. This took the Hippolyta away from the scene of the Belgrano sinking until a short while later they realized the large ship had disappeared from radar screens. Meanwhile, the seas became rougher and the wind was gusting at 70 miles per hour. The waves rose to around 6 meters. It was a torturous night that would follow. Some men inside the life rafts sang the march of the Armada with its words, Valiant boys of the navy who far from loved ones and home watch over the far reaches of our nation's sea. The wind increased as darkness fell. One of the rafts capsized. All the men were drowned. The other rafts then lashed themselves together and closed up their flimsy zipped roofs and the men inside told stories or sang at least those who could. Most were seasick in the rough ocean, battering them side to side. Despite these terrible conditions, the rafts were of an excellent design and survived the battering, but some of the wounded began to succumb from the injuries. The rest bailed the water when it began sloshing around their ankles. A major search and rescue operation was launched at first light when Neptune and Fokker F-28s were dispatched, along with the two escort destroyers that turned around.
It took until 1 p.m. on May the 3rd for the first life rafts to be spotted, and all were found through that afternoon and into the morning of the 4th of May. The submarine HMS Conqueror had returned to the scene and monitored the ships picking up the survivors, with her captain under strict orders to leave them alone. Captain Bonzo, by the way, was in the last life raft to be found. After the war, Redford Brown said this act may have saved more lives, as American Defense Force experts had noted, sink one and you've sunk the lot. Argentina's warships never ventured out to sea again. That may be true, but Britain was going to pay for this act diplomatically, as you'll hear next episode. And the death of 368 Argentinian sailors in such a way shocked most nations. The music theme for this series is a composition by Kevin McLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. And if you'd like to contact me, you can email through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.